Welcome to the Maritime Executive Podcast, In the Know. I'm Tony Munoz, Editor-in-Chief. With me today is Paul Benecki, Editor of the Americas and Europe for the Maritime Executive. Today we will address one of the most contentious topics in the maritime industry, the Jones Act. Joining us today is Nick Loris, Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Rowe Institute of Economic Policy Studies. We also have Eric Smith, Vice President and Chief Commercial Officer for Hendry Marine Industries. Eric is also a former senior executive of Overseas Shipholding Group, where he represented their maritime and political interests in Washington, D.C. We'd like to just start out by saying welcome, gentlemen, and uh, thank you for joining us today. Let's begin with a little background for our listeners who might not be entirely familiar with the Jones Act. What is the Jones Act and how does it impact the U.S. economy? Eric, we'll start with you. Sure. First of all, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Tony, and along with uh, with you, Nick. Um, let me say this. The, the Jones Act is a cabotage law, similar to, in most aspects, to 40 other countries around the world. Uh, the Jones Act requires all goods or services moved from one U.S. port to another to be so moved on vessels built in the U.S., owned by U.S. citizens, documented or flagged in the U.S., and crewed by U.S. citizen mariners. With respect to the economy, the U.S. law provides more than a half a million jobs to U.S. citizens, upwards of $40 billion in GDP, and more than $25 billion in labor income. And quite frankly, the Jones Act underpins our nation's industrial base and has for almost 100 years. Nick, um, tell us your point of view uh, of the Jones Act and how it impacts uh, the economy. Yeah, well, I would say that the costs of the protectionism significantly outweigh the benefits that are concentrated uh, to uh, a select few in the United States. Uh, if you look at the costs of increased uh, shipping from U.S. port to U.S. port, uh, that's spread across consumers uh, all over the United States, uh, particularly impacting uh, our non-contiguous uh, states and territories, Alaska, Hawaii, uh, places like Puerto Rico. Uh, the law, which is nearly a century old now, uh, has these ostensible national security benefits uh, and economic benefits. Uh, I think it fails on both accounts. Uh, it doesn't provide the national security needs uh, for the United States, uh, and when it comes to increased costs uh, for all sorts of uh, goods shipped um, between U.S. ports, whether it's energy, agricultural products, uh, other goods and services uh, that go from uh, port to port on Jones Act vessels, uh, there are significant costs uh, associated uh, with travel uh, to these locations. Eric, just a quick one. Do other countries have a similar legislation? Uh, they do. Actually, uh, 40 to be exact, I believe, is the number currently. And of the 40, I, I, I will note um, that five, I believe five of them have hard, fast domestic construction requirements like the United States. Okay. And uh, are all U.S. flag vessels Jones Act qualified? Uh, no. As a matter of fact, I believe there's at least 60 vessels that are internationally built and U.S. flagged, um, and these vessels do not qualify for Jones Act trading. Um, the 60 that I'm referencing at a minimum are the ones that are in the maritime security program. 
And what are, Erica, just continue with, what are some of the uh, supposed benefits of maintaining the act? Well, um, let's see. the United States maritime industry, quite honestly, certainly in my humble opinion, is the bedrock of our nation's industrial base. Um, from 1988 till 1993, I was employed by the Department of Defense. And one of the conversations that, that occurred uh, frequently was the need for uh, U.S. shipbuilding and ship repair as a means to support our industrial base. Um, if you recall, during that period of time, there was an enormous amount of dialogue within the halls of Congress about closing government shipyards and Navy bases, and um, that conversation daily with respect to our industrial base. Um, it's the creator of a half a million jobs in the United States. It's the producer of billions of dollars in income and GDP, all the while um, receiving virtually zero subsidies. Um, most importantly, Um, While Nick references costs, I would say that the actual cost to the consumer as opposed to the cost to a company is effectively zero. And I can walk, we will, I'm sure through the questions and answers later, we can walk through the details of that. Um, Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Let's get a response from Nick on this. Nick, I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I don't think so because those costs uh, are passed on to the consumers. Uh, and if you look at uh, similar trade routes, uh, you know, looking from uh, a U.S. port to Puerto Rico um, versus a U.S. port uh, to you know somewhere like the Dominican Republic or Jamaica, uh, there are costs uh, three to four times higher using Jones Act vessels, and those costs are passed on to the consumer, which means uh, we're doing. Uh, less, we're selling less goods uh, to the citizens of these territories and, and of these ports. And there's all sorts of stories uh, where uh, farmers are shipping their cows uh, on planes uh, rather than using Jones Act vessels because it's cheaper. So it just, it distorts the markets uh, in ways that have uh, a number of both seen and unseen costs, uh, where different transportation modes are used where they otherwise wouldn't be. Uh, Now, this form of protection, I would argue, is in and of itself uh, a very big subsidy. Um, The the problem is we don't know uh, what uh, the introduction of foreign competition would look like absent the Jones Act. Uh, The the costs associated um, to the non-contiguous states and to ports um, aren't just associated with the protectionism, but also just U.S. laws that the the Jones Act vessels need to follow, whether it's... uh, crew sizes, um, higher labor costs, uh, higher transaction costs, things like that, that ostensibly farm vessels would have to comply with too. So part of this, uh, for what I'd like to see from any type of reform, uh, if that's possible, uh, is something that allows the U.S. maritime industry to be more competitive uh, in the global market uh, rather than relying on the Jones Act uh, to capture the small share of the, the global market that it has now. Sure. Um, advocates say that the law is critically important for a strong base of American seafarers, and it's essential for U.S. shipbuilding jobs. Nick, are these jobs really necessary for national security? I don't think so. If you look at the just the um, size of the fleet and how it's shrunk over the past years, I don't think it's uh, very well equipped 
to meet our national security needs. Um, and, and granted, the, uh, the act of war uh, and um, dealing with terrorists has changed a lot uh, since this law was put in place. But even just looking at the shrinking fleet in 1960, there were nearly 3,000 of these large ships uh, in the U.S. fleet, which is about 17% of the world fleet. And in 2016, that had declined to around 170 ships, which was only 0.4% of the world fleet. Uh, so just looking at that capacity, uh, it, it's very small. Uh, and then if you look at actually our national security needs, uh, the military Sealift Command has routinely chartered foreign vessels. Uh, Rob Cortell, who's been a vocal opponent of the Jones Act, he was a former U.S. Federal Maritime Commissioner and Maritime Security Analyst, has written uh, a number of reports showing the lack of contribution to Jones Act ships, um, for instance, during the Gulf War. So I think from a national security standpoint, uh, this act does not meet our needs, not to mention if you have cost overruns uh, for Jones Act vessels, that means there are less resources dedicated to national security. So it can be harmful to the Navy and national security because given a budget uh, of a particular size, we will buy fewer ships resulting in less security. So Eric, uh, help me with this. Um, it seems like there's a crossover in philosophies from the military sealift vessels and uh, the Jones Act vessels. Uh, mm -hmm. Can sure. you differentiate for me um, the the difference? I mean, it seems like we're blending um, these deep water vessels with the Jones Act vessels. Yeah, I, I think it's important to, to note. First of all, I mean, a lot of what Nick just said, uh, I don't necessarily disagree with. But the national security issue isn't about whether or not we have ocean-going vessels that can support the Navy or the military. The national security issue isn't really about whether or not during the Gulf War there were uh, U.S. flag vessels chartered or not. Um, in, in, in my opinion, the national security issue is the following facts. Um, we have a nation where our waterways touch 38 of our 50 states. And the national security issue with overturning the Jones Act is that there are 40,000 Jones Act vessels that ply our waters. And the issue here is that the advocates for repealing the Jones Act believe that all the inland waterways and all the vessels that we're talking about touching 38 states can now be owned, manned, and crewed by citizens from any country in the world. And that's the national security issue. I don't think quite frankly, that, that we as a nation in 2018 would ever consider repealing the Jones Act and allowing uh, citizens and companies from any country in the world buying and owning Kirby Corporation and manning those hundreds and thousands of assets with mariners from the Philippines or India or Norway or Russia. Uh, coming in and out of our airports every 30 days to crew change. I think, uh, I think that's the national security issue uh, that's really at the heart of the discussion, as opposed to we only have uh, whatever the number is that Nick quoted, 100 vessels, and we don't have enough to support the military in time of need. But having said that, I also believe that when you look at the maritime security program, the one thing that the federal government has done very well is determined that rather than spend the taxpayers' money to construct tens or hundreds 
of vessels that need to carry relatively small amounts of cargo all over the world to meet the needs of the military and spend hundreds of billions of dollars, that what they've done is they've put aside financial resources to say to companies, take your foreign, take your foreign built assets, flag them in the United States, crew them with U.S. mariners, and as needed, we will use those assets because U.S. flag assets are required when chartered by the government, first and foremost, to move our, our, uh, our, our goods for the military. Let me slow you down here a little bit. Uh, you know, we, we, res- we asked our readers to respond, and I'd like to bring in Paul Benecki and have him ask uh, a couple of our readers' questions to both sure. of you gentlemen. Uh, Paul, can you join us here? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, first off, why don't we start with a question from reader um, RPC who asks, most nations with cabotage laws only restrict the nationality of ownership and crews and not the nationality of vessel construction. Mm-hmm. U.S. airlines, railroads, and trucking companies can use foreign-made equipment in domestic trade without building restrictions. Um, why can Jones Act vessels only built in the U.S.? Could this be a possible avenue for improvement without repealing the entire act? Yeah, I think that's a a very good start. I think Eric mentioned uh, in the beginning of the podcast that uh, there are five other countries, uh, or we are one of five countries that have uh, such a component to our cabotage law. And if we can import goods for most other products, uh, including railway, uh, including um, heavy-duty trucks, whatever the case may be, uh, if we can import those goods for a cheaper price, that's only going to bring down the costs of complying with this law. Uh, and so I think that would be uh, a great step forward um, and, and making sure that you know they can be serviced uh, overseas as well. I think uh, if we can reduce some of the maintenance costs uh, and repair costs as well, um, there are ways that without full repeal, we can bring down some of the more expensive overhead associated with the Jones Act. And uh, Eric, would you like to reply? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think that, um, well, first of all, let, let me just ask a quick question of Nick, if it's okay. Nick, th- through this advocacy, do, do you believe that the airline should also go the way of the Jones Act and allow companies like Lufthansa and Ryanair to, to transport um, passengers from Chicago to Peoria? Absolutely. Uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I, yeah. I, I thought so, but I just wanted to, to yeah, make yeah, sure yeah. That, no, that, that you would advocate the same yeah. for the airlines, yeah, that we, we should allow international carriers to come in here. Okay, okay. So, so having said that, um, you know, I, I think it's safe to say, and, and this is probably coming as no surprise, um, I, I believe that we need to have a U.S. build requirement. Um, with respect to maintenance and repair, uh, vessels are permitted to, U.S. flag Jones Act vessels are permitted to be uh, maintained and repaired anywhere in the world. They're not required to be uh, maintained and repaired in U.S. yards. Um, uh, there is a disincentive in some locations with an ad valorem tax by going and doing that overseas, but there are also locations where there is zero ad valorem tax. So it's permitted. Um, it's dealt with in a different manner. The construction, on the other hand, is is required to be in the United States. And um, I, I think the the real reason I go back to one of the opening statements I made. The real reason for having this is that it underpins the industrial base of the United States, and there is a desire by those here in this country 
to have and maintain that industrial base. And there's a strong desire um, within the halls of Congress um, to have the capability to construct and maintain vessels as a nation. Eric, in your opinion, what's what's wrong if we have ships and reflag them and put them in the Jones Act? What do you perceive as the major problem of that consensus? Uh, they weren't built here. Exactly. I mean, why is that a problem? Well, I guess my question back would be, are you suggesting that we do away with the build requirement first? Well, let's do or, or, or permanent. You know, over I mean, years. if, if we, yeah, right. sure. So, so I think that if we did away with the build, the U.S. build requirement, we would lose the capability as a nation um, to uh, to construct vessels. And, and it's it's clear there's a need to construct vessels, maybe not just exclusively commercial vessels, but certainly military vessels. And those are done in commercial yards. They're not done in military yards. They're not done in government yards. I don't think that we want to um, rely on our submarines, aircraft carriers, destroyers, frigates, and auxiliary vessels to necessarily be constructed anywhere outside of the United States. I recognize that parts and pieces you know, come from all over the world. Um, but, but it's clear there's a desire to, to have that here. And, and quite frankly, I, I, I think there's a, a rational reason for that. You know, John McCain has led the charge to repeal the Jones Act, but today he seems willing to accept just the repeal of the U.S. shipbuild. Is that acceptable from the domestic point of view, Eric? No, absolutely not. I mean, there, there are three okay. legs to the, school, the yeah. stool that are clear. Right. Uh, rational reasons for all three legs remain strong and intact. I mean, we, we clearly need maritime labor. We need U.S. shipyards. We need U.S. shipping companies, period. Well, Nick, I mean, if they did repeal the shipbuilding, would that be enough to satisfy, satisfy opponents of the law? You know, I think it would be a great step forward, but full repeal should be on the table. And if you look at some of, again, just the cost overruns uh, and some of the most expensive ships that were ever built, uh, the supercarrier Gerald R. Ford uh, was around $13 billion um, and had... Uh, building requirements that resulted in the project being far behind schedule um, and even potentially needing to be redesigned. Uh, there was another example of, of the Zumwalt, uh, which had a number of problems. Uh, and there was a Mercatus Center at George Mason University that documented the cost of this uh, project, the Zumwalt, uh, and initially said that the original budget for this type of destroyer was expected to cover 32 of these vessels, uh, but now it's only expected to cover two. So if we could use this money to import uh, vessels from our allies across the world, uh, I have no doubt that we would be able to meet uh, any of our national security needs uh, from our allies uh, and then build whatever we needed to do here. Uh, I think it can be uh, a combination of both. Uh, especially if we start to focus on reducing some of the regulatory barriers that prevent the American shipping industry from being more competitive. I, if I could, I respond real quickly. Quickly, please. Sure. I, I, I think there's a couple of elements here that are that are uh, that are noteworthy. First of all, um, yards around the world, the majority of the yards around the world are subsidized by their governments. So, so the the, the notion that somehow we're going to get cheap vessels is is predicated on those subsidies, strong subsidies continuing. That's the first thing. The second thing is with respect to the cost to the consumer, 
Um, Nick is right. He, he is absolutely 100% correct. That the, the cost of a vessel to be built here in the United States with no subsidies compared to a vessel in the Far East with significant subsidies is exponentially higher. And, and Nick, uh, let me ask you just a quick question. Would you put that at $100 million in differential for an MR tanker, hypothetically? That sounds about right to me, yeah. Okay, so let's just take $100 million for the sake of argument. Over a 35-year life, which is typical in the United States, moving 35,000 barrels a day over the life of the vessel, it's, it's a half a cent per gallon. And that's the number that, that really doesn't get talked about, Nick and, and Tony. And, and that's at the heart of all of this. I, I, along with all of the rest of the proponents of the Jones Act, would agree wholeheartedly with the, with the cost being exponentially higher, right? The difference is, is that it doesn't translate into a savings to the consumer when you eliminate the Jones Act. And I think that's at the heart of it. And then when you apply a $4 million annual OPEX, that only adds three quarters of a penny over the life of the vessel. Oh, oh excuse me, over the year. To, to a, to, and I'm using gasoline so, only because so it touches saying, all of us. So what you're saying, Eric, is that over the, court, over the lifetime of a vessel, say 30 years or so, it's, it's pennies on the dollar that it costs. Yeah, that's, so. why, I say, that's yeah. why I use the word right. effectively free. Right, I mean, right. you know, I'm always criticized by saying free, free. Well, it is effectively free because, quite honestly, do we really expect ExxonMobil or Shell or any of the other oil companies to, to give you back that penny? Because it's being transported by somebody else. I right. used to work for a ship owner myself, right? Um, the reality is is that, that that penny and a half, even if it's – heck, even if it's a nickel, it's just not going to show up in the pump. I, I, think, I think Nick w would also agree that – we move a we consume 145 billion gallons of gasoline annually in the United States. Less than 10% of that gasoline is moved on Jones Act tonnage. So the idea that somehow all of the gasoline in the United States is going to drop in price by eliminating the Jones Act is just not the case. Nick, give it's, us a it's, it's not feasible. Nick, respond to that. Well, I think you need to aggregate all those costs over time. I mean, if you looked at studies that date back uh, nearly two decades, it was the U.S. International Trade Commission that found the annual cost to consumers as, uh, of the Jones Act compliance was $1.32 billion. And several economic analyses have pegged that number closer to $2 billion to consumers. So that those are real costs, uh, and those are real costs um, when you're trying to make ends meet. Uh, and this is ultimately the problem with subsidies and with protectionist policies: is they concentrate the benefits uh, to a select few individuals. And this is not uh, this is not just with the Jones Act; it's with something like the Renewable Fuel Standard that mandates corn ethanol as well. You know, these all these policies have costs, uh, and they're spread out to consumers. So it's, if it's a few cents every day. Uh, those few cents add up. Uh, and then we have a hodgepodge of very bad policies uh, that overall have net economic costs. And you can look at pretty much uh, almost every study of the Jones Act, and it shows net economic costs uh, from the World Bank, uh, from the ITC that I mentioned, from a, a number of renowned economists around the world. Uh, and again, those costs are disproportionately uh, hit from consumers in Hawaii, Alaska, Puerto Rico, and Guam, uh, but but these are real costs. And then these policies that are ultimately bad stay entrenched uh, because the network of those who collect the benefits are so strong and have a, a very powerful lobbying arm uh, that it's hard to get the rest of the country 
worked up uh, about the you know even a two billion dollar cost tag. But if you look at places like Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, they are vehemently against the Jones Act, and I think for very compelling and obvious reasons. Paul, uh, why don't you ask another question from our readers? Certainly. Actually, I'd like to ask a follow-up about the practicality of using foreign crews in domestic trade and whether, even without the Jones Act, this would be a realistic option. Would foreign crews have to comply with U.S. labor laws, with U.S. licensing requirements, if they were to operate between U.S. ports? Sure. I, well, first of all, I, I would say that uh, it, it would be in our best interest to have them complying with uh, all of our, our country's laws and regulations and uh, taxes, etc. Um, but when you do that, I, I honestly don't think that, um, uh, that there would be much of a difference as a result of it when, when that was all imposed or in, in implied on uh, foreign nationals uh, plying the waters. Um, but again, I, I go back to – I don't even know if there's a, you know, an adequate number of uh, international mariners uh, available effectively tomorrow to do that. Um, the converse certainly isn't true. There's not enough U.S. mariners to, to, to man even a fraction of the world fleet. So, but, but the cost of complying with U.S. laws is, uh, is and would be substantial to uh, the international companies. But I certainly wouldn't be an advocate of that. I mean I go back to the national security issue. I don't think that we want – uh, you know, 500,000 uh, employees that are currently U.S. citizens being replaced by 500,000 uh, foreign nationals. And um, Nick, if, if I might ask too, you, you mentioned that you would advocate for allowing foreign operators of airlines to fly between American cities. If you did repeal these restrictions that specifically have to do with transportation and cabotage, would that even make it okay to start using foreign labor within American transportation markets? Yeah. Uh, if you look at uh, you know, something like the Government Accountability Office, which has shown there's been no known examples of uh, any foreign seafarer involvement in terrorist attacks uh, and no definitive evidence of any type of extremist infiltrating the United States uh, on seafarer visas, uh, I think the risk of a terrorist activity uh, is overblown. Um, and we have foreign crews that dock on our ports uh, all of the time when they're transporting imports and exports uh, to uh, our coasts from different countries. Uh, they, they dock on our coasts, they stay there, uh, and there has really been no problem associated with foreign crews uh, docking on our coasts. So I have very little concern uh, if we're looking at waterways in our mainland uh, that there will be such an issue. Um, granted, they will have to comply with our regulations, uh, which I think in a lot of senses can be overbearing and that'll increase the costs, uh, but they you know, would still have to go through national security checks and ensure just as other industries uh, that are potential risks to national security, we need to have the right background in checks. But simply opening up uh, opportunities to foreign competition will reduce the costs. Um, I think it, it will not only help the United States maritime industry by aligning the right incentives to reducing the cost to, with foreign competition, but it will uh, allow people uh, and importers and uh, transporters of goods more choice. And ultimately, more choice and competition is when we get better quality at lower prices. Yeah, but uh, how does this affect uh, currently uh, U.S. shipping and uh, uh, mariners pay 
much higher tax than say would foreigners is am i am, am i off base on that so you know uh, the most opponents say that uh, foreign crews and foreign operators are still going to be paying the tax in your view is that tax going to be at the same level say as a u.s citizen or a u.s company um what is the impact on the treasury well they should play by the same rules so whatever that tax rate is which you know i would argue should be lower uh both u.s industries and foreign industries should have to pay uh the same amount of taxes just as if they should have to comply with the same amount of regulation so i don't necessarily see it as a, a loss of the treasury and that's difficult to calculate uh, for a number of reasons uh just because our maritime industry shrinks uh, that doesn't necessarily mean our economy won't grow. I mean, if we're purchasing more goods and services, that's also a contributor to our tax base. Uh, if our maritime industry shrinks, that creates opportunities for new jobs and new employment, uh, new innovations uh, in a number of sectors in the American economy that can actually grow the economy and therefore grow the tax base. So just simply looking at it from an isolated standpoint of uh, reduced tax revenue from foreign competition, I don't think looks at the full picture. Whereas if you do introduce more competition and you have uh, lower costs associated with transportation, uh, you ultimately will get more tax revenues, not less. Eric, does that dog hunt? Mm, no, uh, not, not at all. I mean, Let's go back to the original, the, the first statement, the hypothetical that we haven't had any national and we haven't had any mariners uh, involved in terrorism. Um, I, don't, I don't think any mariners have won the gold medal in pole vaulting, but who knows what could bring the summer. Um, the, the fact of the matter is this. When it comes to national security, opening up our inland waterways and the 40,000 vessels that are registered under the Jones Act to foreign nationals just doesn't seem to hold water. Furthermore, when you look at tax revenue, if you're going to tax foreign nationals to a, to a lesser degree than U.S. citizens, then it definitely has an impact on the Treasury. If you're going to tax them the same, why would you do away with the 500,000 jobs? So I just sit back and from a, from a very basic, logical, analytical and, and I'm an engineer, right? I went to school to be a marine engineer. I look at this from a very analytical perspective. If it doesn't benefit the consumer, and I've already agreed that the costs collectively are greater, but the net benefit to the consumer and the potential savings to the consumer, again, I go back to saying it's zero. So therefore, why would you change it? Why would you alter it? And why would anybody advocate taking all those jobs away from Americans and giving them to, to folks that are uh, based and live and work overseas and they're not U.S. citizens. That I just don't understand. Nick, well, why don't you respond to that? Where's the benefit in all of this? I don't see much benefit in very small output and large employment numbers. Uh, if you have 500,000 workers uh, supplying only 0.4% of the global uh, transportation of vessels, uh, that's problematic. I mean, I could own a, a pizza shop and I could employ 20 cooks uh, to make pizzas, uh, but my value of labor to output is going to be relatively small. Uh, and that's the same with the maritime industry. Uh, we can't look at it just in terms of uh, the great number of employment, 500,000 people. Uh, we have to look at it as all of those external costs that add up over time and 
result in less economic efficiency and therefore uh, a less uh, strong labor market in other sectors of the economy. So, yes, uh, 500,000 workers is a lot. Uh, I think the United States and Congress should do a lot to reduce those regulations uh, in order to make the American shipping industry more competitive with foreign suppliers and foreign builders. Um, but simply giving a big number uh, disregards how markets function and economics work. Uh, we don't necessarily need to look at, at big numbers. Uh, we need to look at the value and the output. And therefore, if you look at the value and the output of this protectionist piece of legislation, uh, we are not getting uh, the bang for our buck in terms of costs. Well, one of the big events uh, last year was the hurricane season, and it was devastating in ter terms of sheer destruction and economic impact. Hurricane Maria uh, crippled Puerto Rico's infrastructure and economy, which is still in recovery mode. And the Jones Act companies responded swiftly to that event, uh, as they did in Haiti, and uh, they staged food and commodities to get the island back and running. But today, there's renewed calls to permanently waive the Jones Act for Puerto Rico, as well as Hawaii and Alaska. Um, Nick, what do you say say to that? Well, I, I do think the Jones Act vessels responded uh, efficiently and adequately in terms of delivering uh, supplies uh, to Puerto Ricans. Uh, you know, that is uh, without a doubt true, um, and, and they should be commended for that. But... Uh, if you look at the overall cost to Puerto Ricans, this is where the Jones Act becomes problematic. It's not about those few months after the natural disaster and getting uh, immediate supplies there. Uh, it's the simple cost factor that Puerto Rican consumers could, being, could buy a lot more uh, if they did not have to use Jones Act vessels. Uh, there was a study from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that said shipping a container from the U.S. East Coast to Puerto Rico costs uh, over $3,000, uh, but shipping that same container to the Dominican Republic or, or Jamaica was $1,500 and $1,600, respectively. So uh, these are the problems in, in terms of helping the Puerto Rican economy recover, is that they're, have to, they're, they're paying more for less, and it's forcing them to look to other markets, and this is another cost to the U.S. economy that does not go told enough. Uh, the fact that Puerto Rican farmers are now importing agricultural inputs from Canada uh, in St. John and New Brunswick, even though it's more than 500 miles further than a New Jersey port that could ship the same products. And so this is a lost opportunity for uh, the U.S. agricultural base. And again, it's a small cost, uh, but those costs up, add up over time. Uh, so again, looking at the net costs to a place like Puerto Rico or to Hawaii, uh, these are the problems where they're paying more to buy less. Eric? Eric? Sure. Uh, for, first of all, I would note that the containers that move into Puerto Rico are 50 feet, three feet long versus the standard 40 foot. So yes, it is more expensive to move a container into Puerto Rico. But I will also note that if you want to buy sandwich bags, band-aids, toilet paper, or soup, it's exactly the same price in San Juan as it is in Jacksonville. And uh, a study was recently done that, that, that proves that. However, I will note that if you have a need for an abundance amount of tall glad trash bags, it's 25% cheaper in Puerto Rico than it is in Jacksonville. So that's something to keep in the back of your mind. Um, the, the most important fact um, that Puerto Rico, Alaska, and Hawaii uh, don't get 
credited with or talked about is that they can source goods anywhere in the world. Gasoline, jet, diesel, uh, guns, butter, salt and pepper, it can come from anywhere in the world. It doesn't have to come from the United States. And the United States, the continental United States, doesn't have to buy what's produced here. As we know, in some cases, they don't. Um, so so uh, if you look at Puerto Rico, for example, over 90, maybe even 95 percent of its, its uh, supply of fuel does not come from the United States. The United States is a net exporter of refined petroleum product. Um, you would think that it would be a natural outlet, but it's not. It comes from other parts of the world because it's cheaper. Um, so, so when you look at places like Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, um, sure, there, there occasionally are some cost differentials, but it's not attributed to the Jones Act. It's just not. Paul, do we have any uh, questions, remaining questions from our readers? We do. Um, this one is much more narrow and specific. It has to do with um, specialty vessels, um, so high-spec <laughs> offshore construction vessels in particular. Um, so Customs and Border Protection administers Jones Act compliance for foreign ships. And historically, they have provided waivers for offshore construction vessels to load equipment at U.S. ports on the Gulf Coast and drive to offshore rigs, which are technically uh, U.S. points. Um, so they, they qualify effectively as U.S. ports to do their subsea construction work. Um, and American operators of competing vessels think that this is, of course, not a great idea. Um, foreign operators say that their equipment is different and specialized and valuable enough that it should be allowed to do this particular line of work and that their crews have the experience to do it. Uh, Eric, where would you fall in this particular uh, narrow question of Jones Act compliance for particular types of vessels that only exist in small markets internationally and are somewhat difficult and costly to develop? Yeah, great, great question. Um, th th that's always the, uh, the the unique balance between um, what we can actually do and what we do actually do when it when it relates to the production of of uh, waterborne assets, whether it be the operate the operation of waterborne assets. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of vessels that we can build here in the United States, and there's not a vessel on the planet that we can't operate, in my opinion. However. We, we, we don't build all vessels, and, and we don't currently operate all vessels. So um, I, I fall uh, very succinctly in line with if you're transporting something from one U.S. port to another U.S. location, and if it happens to be offshore within the EEC, uh, it has to be jones Act. period. No questions asked. Um, I, I understand um, that uh, companies have requested waivers, and in some cases waivers have been granted. Uh, both temporarily and, and in some cases permanently. Um, fundamentally, I'm not a supporter of that, uh, but but I uh, be, because it's really a function of bad planning. In other words, if you're an oil company and you know you know years in advance what you need and what you're going to do, then you should plan accordingly. Um, but having said that, um, we are where we are in some cases, and um, you know it, it, it's it, it's not my particular fight to fight. Um, at this point, um, but I am a proponent that if you move anything from one U.S. port to another, it should be on Jones Act vessels. Well, well uh, Nick, let me follow up. Do you think there's a chance that the Trump administration would repeal the Jones Act considering the president's America First platform? Honestly, probably not. Uh, if you look at the administration, as you mentioned, it, it's very America First. 
Um, I, I think this is obviously a protectionist policy that benefits the American shipping industry. Uh, and you know, the president wants to see more jobs in the United States. Uh, and I, I believe you know, he would be a big believer in a strong domestic shipping industry, where I do think hopefully there would be some common ground uh, is to look at ways to make the U.S. shipping industry uh, more competitive uh, through reforming some of these uh, laws that the industry has to comply with. Uh, and Eric probably knows more about those regulations than I do, honestly. Uh, but if, if it's carrying a certain number of members on uh, a fleet or having certain crew sizes, uh, if it's certain regulations that don't provide um, safety and the, the additional costs are not worth the marginal benefits in terms of uh, additional security or protection, uh, you know, things like that that can help the industry be more competitive, not just in the United States, uh, but globally as well. So, you know, we have a greater share of the pie. Uh, and so we're, more people are using U.S. vessels uh, for non-Jones Act routes. Um, so we're using more ships uh, to transport products from uh, the East Coast to Europe or um, the West Coast to, to Shanghai, whatever the case may be. Uh, that's ultimately where I think there would be some opportunities for uh, agreement uh, and moving policy in a direction that is more market-oriented and results in uh, a stronger, more innovative industry. Uh, gentlemen, um, I want to thank you very much uh, for joining us today. And I'd like to also just give us your final thoughts on, the, on this very contentious topic. Um, why don't we start with Eric? Sure. Um, I, I would end on this note. First of all, I'd like to thank both, all of you, uh, Maritime Executive and, and Nick, for participating. It's truly been a pleasure. Um, the Jones Act helps our country. It creates jobs, and it's effectively free to all consumers. Personally, I just refuse to take a knee for an illegitimate proposition which serves the bottom line of only a few companies, harms thousands of Americans while posing a security risk to hundreds of millions of Americans in our nation. I stand with the shipyards, shipping companies, and most of all with my fellow merchant mariners who comprise the most important segment of this industry, maritime labor. Nick, uh, your final thoughts? Well, I'd agree with Eric. This has been a great conversation. Uh, it's always a, a fun and interesting topic to discuss, uh, and I know it can be a contentious one given you're talking about domestic jobs, uh, you're talking about national security. And so given that uh, this, again, gets to the heart of what I see as the problem with policies all over the United States and not just uh, specific to the maritime industry. And, and again, that is the concentrated benefits and the dispersed costs that result in bad policies staying in place uh, because of the strong lobbying arm, uh, because of those specific benefits. But over time, those costs certainly accrue, and they accrue to the agricultural industry, they accrue to the energy industry, uh, they accrue to uh, purchasers of all sorts and goods and services, not just in the United States, but uh, again, especially to uh, our states uh, in Hawaii and Alaska and Puerto Rico and Guam. Uh, these are significant costs, so I don't think it's fair to call it effectively free uh, when people could be using their money to buy even more resources and goods for their families, where we could be growing the economy uh, as a whole uh, with more competition and innovation. Uh, so restricting uh, our ability to have choice uh, in the industry 
ultimately results in more harm to all of us. Uh, and so if you can have those policies, uh, not just with regards to the shipping industry, but throughout the United States, when it comes to policies of picking winners and losers, the more we move away from picking winners and losers, the better off we're all going to be. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for your time. And we look forward to uh, giving this to our readers and listeners and getting their uh, commentary on uh, these great facts and, and arguments that you brought together today. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to In the Know, the Maritime Executive Magazine podcast. I'm Paul Benecki. We hope you'll join us again for our next exciting discussion on maritime technology, business, and policy. In the meantime, please visit us online at www.maritime-executive.com for the latest news and views from around the industry.